And this is the testimony of John, when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. So they said to him, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him, then why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water, that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Have you ever met one of those people that are just really difficult to figure out? I know that if you've lived around here long enough, you've met enough MIT students, and so you've met a few of those. (laughs) There are always people that are difficult to figure out in our lives. I had a person like that in my life uh, when I was in college. It was actually a roommate of mine. And his name was Teddy. And uh, if, you, if you're a close friend with me, you've heard stories about Teddy. I have a lot of stories about Teddy because he's a weird person. Uh, Teddy has like a phobia of Cheeto dust. That's such an oddly specific phobia. Um, but then it just is a really funny one. Uh, like people would always crunch up Cheetos and like leave them places just for him to freak out by them. Um, Teddy would also keep the air conditioner on 60 at all times which is just an unreasonable temperature to have the air conditioner on. He's just an odd human, um, a delightful one, very joyful, kind person, just doesn't make a lick of sense at all, as they would say where I grew up, Um, until I met Teddy's friend, Josh, and I saw Teddy and Josh interact together. You know, I actually knew Josh before I knew Teddy, but then I met them independently, and then to see them together. Oh, it just makes a world of sense. In fact, this is how I discovered that Teddy's name is not actually Teddy. But instead, when they were children, Josh said, hey, Zach, you look like a Teddy Graham. I'm going to call you Teddy for now on. And thus, he was known as Teddy for the rest of his life. His own wife calls him Teddy still because he looks like a Teddy Graham. Not because, he, not because his name's Theodore. It's Zach. <laughs> he looks like a Teddy Graham. That's how it got there. To see those two interact together, oh, it's a joyous occasion. Um, I remember getting together for our friend Drew's wedding, and oh, I hadn't seen him in a couple years, and all I could do was just laugh. Oh, it's just so much joyful. Do you have a friend like that, that, that you see, and it just brings something out of you that you could just never imagine, 
and that no one else can bring out of you. And then when you see that friend with another friend, uh, just more things come out and suddenly they start making sense. I love how C.S. Lewis talks about this. C.S. Lewis, a famous author in England, he uh, had a group of other authors that he would hang out regularly with called the Inklings. And they would go to a pub, drink beers, talk about stories and writing. Actually, one of the members of the Inklings was J.R.R. Tolkien, uh, who wrote The Lord of the Rings. And so you have two of the, um, two of the most prolific authors of the 20th century hanging out in a pub every Friday together in a group. And he writes about this group in his book, The Four Loves. And he talks about uh, Tolkien as the, uh, as uh, he calls him Ronald, okay? So we'll colloquially call him Ronald. And he says this, uh, actually what happens is one of their friends, one of the other members of uh, the, the Inklings dies. And this is what Lewis has to say. In each of my friends, there is something that only some other friend can fully bring out. By myself, I'm not large enough to call the whole man into activity. I want other lights that can, that can that other lights than my own to show all his facets. Now that Charles is dead, I shall never again see Ronald's reaction to a specifically Charles joke. Far from having more of Ronald, having him to myself, now that Charles is away, I have less of Ronald. Isn't that profound? To think of what our relationships with others do to bring out the best parts of ourselves. And how we as a community become more of ourselves around one another than less of ourselves from being near to one another. Today, as we continue our series in the book of John, we see some religious leaders go to a man named John the Baptist, and they want to know, who are you? Who are you? The way that John identifies himself is very interesting and instructive for us today. And so the question, simple as it is, and one that you answer many times throughout each day, who are you? Who are you? Easy enough question, but an important one. And maybe more importantly, how does your idea of yourself change when you consider your relationship with Jesus? How does the light of Jesus show new facets to who you are? And so the main idea today is this. A healthy view of oneself requires a healthy view of Jesus. An appropriate view of oneself. If you want to know who you are and be comfortable in your own skin and be able to not think too highly of yourself or too lowly of yourself, if you want to know who you are and if you want to become more secure in that, a healthy view of yourself requires a healthy view of Jesus. Let's dive in here, okay? What is a healthy view of oneself? It's our first question. Verse 19, we're just gonna walk through the passage. And this is the testimony of John. Okay, so now we've been going through the book of John. We've done two sermons through the prologue. This is starting the narrative of the gospel of John. And then we get to this 
verse, at this point it's just been prologue, so we haven't really had any narrative. Now it's saying, and now this is the testimony of John. And now we're studying the, the gospel of John, and it says this is the testimony of John. And so it would be an appropriate, a perfectly understandable assumption for you to make to say, oh, now the author is talking about himself. And though that would be completely understandable, you would be absolutely wrong. Because that's not what's happening at all. If you remember a few weeks ago, the Gospel of John is written anonymously um, by a disciple whom Jesus loved. Is the only way that he describes himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. And so now we see the disciple whom Jesus loved writing about a different John. Turns out there's more than one John in the ancient world as well. John's a common name today. It's been common for 2,000 years, okay, or more. And so we have this disciple known as John, this man known as John, and uh, his, he, he's known as John the Baptist. Now, John the Baptist is um, not the patron saint of the Baptist denomination, okay? Uh, he doesn't wear khakis or put on potlucks or anything like that. John the Baptist is known as John the Baptist because he is baptizing people all the time. You could just as easily call him John the Baptizer. Okay, we might just call him JTB for the rest of the sermon today. He's, he's a, a, a person in the scripture. We don't actually have much in the scripture about JTB uh, in the book of John, but the synoptic gospels, uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, tell us more about John, and we know from those gospels that JTB, he is the second cousin of Jesus. Now, I know that there's some discussion about what a second cousin is. I could draw you a chart, okay? I'm one of those people that actually understands how cousins work, okay? You got first cousins, first cousins once removed, second cousins, we can do all of that, but what's happening is John the Baptist's mother is Elizabeth. Elizabeth has a first cousin named Mary, and Mary is Jesus's mother. And so therefore, Mary and Elizabeth, first cousins, you go down one step, second cousins, okay? John and Jesus, second cousins, and they probably grew up together. We, we learn in the scriptures that at one point, Mary visits her, her relative, Elizabeth, and they, um, and when they're both pregnant, and whenever Mary walks in pregnant with Jesus, she hasn't been pregnant quite as long as Elizabeth has been pregnant, and John the Baptist leaps for joy inside of Elizabeth's womb. They've known each other since before they were ever even born, and since they are relatives, you would assume that they grew up together, which would be pretty cool, you know, like unlimited juice boxes. Sounds great. The synoptics also describe John's appearance. They say that as he grew older, that he was clothed with camel's hair, that he lived out in the wilderness, that he came out. Just imagine this scene, okay? Someone coming out of Middlesex Fells. <laughs> Fells. Um, my grandmother's here. My southern accent's going to come out. I'm sorry. Um, the, the, uh, someone coming out of Middlesex Fells. They haven't seen anybody in quite a, quite a time. And they're wearing camel's hair and a leather belt they're eating honey and locusts, and they have a wild, bushy beard. This person is different. And that's what we see about John. He stands out. He's a different kind of person. He reminds us of the Old Testament prophets. He reminds me, and this illustration might not hit home with many of you, but of Rick Rubin, the producer, okay? That's who I have in my mind when I think of JTB, all right? Um, that illustration actually goes really deep, but I cut it because not anybody would understand it. Um, 
Now, when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? Now, these are, the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem are the Sanhedrin. It's like a council of Jews. It's like a government of the Jewish people. And they sent people among them, probably of the Pharisees, to go and ask John who that guy is. He's causing enough religious controversy to where the religious uh, leaders need to send a delegation to go and ask him, what are you doing? Who are you? And so they go and ask him, who are you? And he, he confessed, verse 20, and did not deny, but confessed, I'm not the Christ. I'm not the Messiah. And they asked him, what then, are you Elijah? And he said, I'm not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. So they're questioning John. They realize that he must be some important guy. He's gathered a following, but they don't know who he is. And so What's interesting about this is they ask him if he's Elijah, and he says, I'm not. But then later, at the transfiguration, we see uh, the disciples talking to Jesus and say, the scriptures say that Elijah has to come first to prepare the way for you. And Jesus said, he's already come. He's, he's saying that he is John the Baptist. And so that's interesting, because John the Baptist appears to be contradicting what Jesus says at the transfiguration. But what is actually happening here is that John the Baptist, he might not even know what purpose exactly he's serving. And the scriptures nowhere say that John the Baptist himself claimed to be Elijah. Maybe he didn't even understand what purpose he was serving. And Jesus did understand the full purpose of everything as he always does. And so he's able to explain that to the disciples. But John the Baptist, he's like, look, no, here's what I'm here for. I am here as the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now here he's quoting from Isaiah chapter 40. Make straight the way of the Lord. And this is a great prophecy. He recognizes that he comes in the line of the prophets, that he's acting like a prophet. And he is to make straight the way of the Lord, meaning that he is preparing the way for Jesus. And they ask him, why are you baptizing if you're neither the Christ nor Elijah nor the prophet? And John answered them, I baptize with water. Catch this, church. But among you stands one you do not know. Even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. Now what a humble statement. The strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. Now, if you don't understand some things about the ancient world, the ancient world did not have modern sewer systems like we do today. Okay, those were invented like after the bubonic plague, whenever we realized that the waste was causing many of the issues that we were having with our public health system. My wife can tell you all about this. Uh, the one place that she wanted to, we went to London last year, the one place she wanted to go in London was the pump that Jon Snow uh, created to help with public health. And she wanted to take a I had to ask people to move. They were like, oh, this thing? I don't know what that is. Anyways, she'll tell you about public health. But that stuff didn't exist back then. Uh, back then, the streets were full of refuse and garbage and, and waste. And as you walked around with your sandals, your feet were pretty disgusting. And in fact, the only people who would wash your feet were slaves if you forced them to. And so what John is saying here, our friend JTB, he's saying, I'm not even worthy to untie his feet. JTB, he's placing himself below the place of slave. 
I'm not even worthy to be his slave. I'm unworthy of him. That's how much greater he is than I am. Now, you might read this and think, don't be so down on yourself, Mr. Baptist. Come on, that's, you need a little bit more self-esteem. That's some pretty low self-esteem. You need to think more highly of yourself. And, and you might think that because don't, of all, don't most of our problems come from low self-esteem? And here's the thing with John is that it's not that he has a low view of himself. He has an appropriate view of himself. He knows who Jesus is, and he knows who he is. And only a relationship with Jesus teaches us how to have an appropriate view of ourselves. Without Jesus, we will oscillate between thinking too much of ourselves and thinking too little of ourselves. We will oscillate between pride and arrogance and self-loathing. You know this oscillation. This is one of those things we fall into as humans. One moment, we're hating ourselves, and then the next moment, we can't believe someone's wronged us. Because why would they wrong me out of pride and arrogance? And here's the real difference, though. Let me explain this a little bit to you. The difference between self-hatred and humility. John the Baptist, he's not saying, I hate myself. I'm the worst. He's not saying that. He's saying, I'm unworthy of Jesus. He's merely speaking what he recognizes to be true. That Jesus is the king. That he is the son of God. One member of the triune God that's existed throughout eternity past. I'm not worthy of him. That's what he's saying. He's not saying I hate myself. Look, our culture today tells us so many times that our problem with ourselves is that we just don't think, we, we don't think highly enough of ourselves. I have three kids, they're all young, so I'm very familiar with animated movies, okay? I don't know what Dane's watching over there, I've never heard of that show, <laughs> but I can tell you all about some cartoons, okay? Every Friday, it's pizza and movie night in the Lang household, and when you think about cartoons, it, it, you know, after watching this many cartoons, I've started to get pretty philosophical about them in some ways, uh, because when you think about cartoons, they really kind of shape a generation, do they not? It's like, I grew up in the early 90s. I grew up with early 90s cartoons. And they kind of shape the way that I think about the world to this day. I kind of think about them some. And so I think about the cartoons that my kids are growing up with, right? I am not exaggerating. I think that every cartoon, well, maybe I'm a little exaggerating. I think that every cartoon in the past 10 years has had the, ba the same basic moral of the story. And it's this, don't look to others to get your self-worth, especially your parents. You have to look within yourself and do what makes you happy. That is the basic plot of almost every cartoon. We just got done watching the new Pixar film, Elemental. I won't ruin it, but that's the plot, okay? That's, that's where we're going. Red Panda, same plot. Moana, same plot. Coco, that's the same story. You know, they just want him to stop playing the music. And he's like, I want to play the music. In Canto, everyone's burdened with the expectations placed upon them. Frozen, just look at the lyrics of Frozen, okay? Let it go. <laughs> Don't let them in. 
don't let them see. Be the good girl you always have to be. Conceal, don't feel, don't let them know. Well, now they know, let it go. I mean, that's the same message. Don't define yourself based upon what other people think about you, especially your parents. Define yourself in your own way. Do what makes you happy, be you. Now, there is a moral that is healthy here, and it's this. You can't look to other people to give your life meaning and purpose. Because if you look to other people to give your life meaning and purpose, here's what's gonna happen. When you get praise, you'll feel on top of the world. And when you get criticism, it'll feel like you died a million deaths. You'll be in the deepest pit that you could be in. When you are dependent upon other people's approval for your own satisfaction and joy in life, it isn't a good idea. But the solution is not where Disney takes us. The solution is not to just believe more in yourself and you do what makes you happy, find internal value. It's just you're not looking to the right person to give your life worth a meaning and worth. Because if you look to another human, they'll always disappoint. But if you look to an eternal God who has contra-conditional love, not just unconditional, but it's despite what you have done, contra, despite what you have done, he loves you still. When you look to a maker and a creator and a father and a king such as that, well, then you can find enough resources to not run into emotional ruin, but instead to be rooted in the love of Christ that he has for you. Our culture, they tell us, don't do that. Don't define yourself by the opinions of others. Instead, look within. But the gospel tells us that we have reason to find value outside of ourselves, but not in other people, but in God. Now, God doesn't love us because we're so lovely, though. We are unworthy like John the Baptist, unworthy to untie his sandals. One author, Trevin Wax, he distinguishes between the therapeutic gospel and the biblical gospel. The therapeutic gospel says this, I am valuable and that's why God loves me. It leaves us thinking, Lord, thank you for recognizing my worth and loving me. Now that's not the gospel though because John the Baptist says I'm unworthy. The biblical gospel says, I'm valuable because God loves me, because he loves me. Now, look, it's a, it's a careful tension to walk because the reality is you're unworthy. We all are. None of us are worthy of God. But at the same time, he cared about us enough to send the second, the, the second member of the Trinity to die in our place. And therefore, because of that great love, we are so valued and accepted but it's only because of what he has done and not because of what I've done. I haven't proven myself to him. John says he's unworthy to untie the sandals of Jesus, but when you look at Jesus, this man, he, he never stops surprising us because what does Jesus do? Toward the end of his life, at the Last Supper, he gets down on his knees and he washes the feet of the disciples. And that is the Jesus that we have that, get, that puts himself low to serve us to love us, that is who he is. John may be unworthy to untie his sandal, but Jesus saw him as valuable enough to die for his sins and adopt him into his family. And so John has this appropriate view of himself. It's not too high, it's not too low. He doesn't have an inferiority complex or a superiority complex. 
as Tim Keller would put it, he has the freedom of self-forgetfulness. As C.S. Lewis would put it, humility is not thinking less of yourself, it's just thinking of yourself less. It's not thinking I'm a terrible, despicable person, it's just thinking about others and thinking about God and having that freedom of self-forgetfulness. And so that is a healthy view of oneself. Now, um, you can get a healthy view of oneself only by doing this, having a healthy view of Jesus. Having a healthy view of Jesus. What is a healthy view of Jesus? Verse 29. The next day, he saw Jesus coming toward him. This is JTB. And he said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now remember, JTB and Jesus, they were in diapers together. His opinion of Jesus has changed rather drastically from his childhood recognizing him as the Lamb of God. Behold, the Lamb of God. What a rich statement in the Bible. The Lamb of God. The first time that we see a lamb in the Bible is with Abraham. As Abraham takes his son up onto the mountain to offer his son as a sacrifice as God has commanded him, his one and only son, Isaac, to be sacrificed. And he lays him on the altar, and Isaac's saying, are you gonna do this, Dad? You're gonna sacrifice me. And as Abraham is bringing down the knife, as God has commanded him to, he hears a voice saying, stop, Abraham. And he looks over in the bushes and he sees a ram, a a ram, a lamb, caught in the thicket that dies in the place of Isaac, the lamb of God. Later on in the scriptures, we see the Passover and we see the lamb come again. And with the Passover, we have the, the, the 10 plagues that are sent to Egypt And each plague is getting increasingly worse and increasingly worse. And finally, we have the plague of the firstborn child, firstborn son. And God tells the Israelites that there's going to be an angel to sweep through the entire land that will kill every firstborn son. And the only way to protect their firstborn sons is to kill a lamb and to put the blood of the lamb over the door. And when you put the blood of the lamb over the door, the angel will see the blood and the the lamb will have died instead of the firstborn son. The lamb of God, the substitutionary sacrifice that we see at the Passover. Then we get to Isaiah 53 and it says, verse seven, he was oppressed, this is one of the greatest prophecies about Jesus, he was oppressed and was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep, that is before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Foretelling of Jesus on Gethsemane. And then finally, we get to, I'm skipping plenty of references to lambs in the scripture, but this is such a, a, just a powerful metaphor that he has. We get to Revelation, and we see the triumphant lamb. Revelation chapter seven. And after this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the, what is it? Lamb. Clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. JTB recognizes that Jesus Christ is the Lamb of God, the substitutionary sacrifice. Verse 30, he says, this is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks before me, 
because he was before me. Now look, I got cousins, and when you have cousins, you never forget who's older. You never forget who's older, okay? I can tell you the exact rank of all of my cousins. But yet, John the Baptist, he's older, and he says, he was before me. John the Baptist is totally recognizing that Jesus is the eternal Son of God. Verse 32, and John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove. So he's telling the story of Jesus' baptism. Jesus came to John. It's not recorded in the book of John, but Jesus came to uh, JTB and asked to be baptized. And when he was baptized, the Spirit of God, like a dove, came down upon Jesus. And a voice cried out, this is my Son with whom I am well pleased. And you saw all three members of the Trinity right there at the waters at the baptism of Jesus. And though John doesn't get to it, he describes what happens at the baptism. And he says, and I have seen and borne witness that this is the Son of God. Can you imagine what it would take to convince you that one of your cousins is the Son of God? So as these leaders come and question John, he says, look, you got the wrong guy. You shouldn't be asking me anything because there's one among yourselves whose sandal am I, I am not even fit to untie. He says, there's someone coming that's greater than me. Forget about me. You see, John the Baptist, he has this self-forgetfulness because he's like so focused on Jesus. He's like, don't worry about me. He's the one who's coming. He's the one. And when you define your relationship with Jesus in this kind of way, when you define yourself by your relationship with Jesus, it gives you this kind of freedom as well, this freedom of self-forgetfulness. A few years ago, we bought a house in Somerville uh, with with some other members of the church here, and uh, I had a very strict timeline. I had like two and a half months, three months to renovate before my family would move in because we had a lease that we were stuck in. And so I just went in there, and many of you came and helped, and we ripped out all the walls in the kitchen, and we, we got to work. And I will tell you, that was an intense part of my life, because every moment that I was not spending preparing a sermon or eating dinner with my family, I was at that house working on that thing. I was working basically two full-time jobs to get the house ready for the kids. I was installing cabinets and you know, coordinating with plumbers and electricians and all of that type of stuff, working. And what would happen is I would go into the house on a Saturday, and it's like a time warp would hit, and I wouldn't do anything. I wouldn't eat. I wouldn't use the restroom. I wouldn't do anything. And I'd look at my clock, and it'd be 5 p.m. Because I was so consumed with the work that was before me, and consumed with something other than myself, I had this freedom of self-forgetfulness. And this is somewhat like it is like when we put our eyes on Christ, that we can forget about ourselves. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones was a Welsh pastor in London back in the, 1990, uh, in the 1900s, in the, in the 50s and 60s, 40s. He tells the story of, his congreg- of, of asking congregants at his church, are you a Christian? Are you a Christian right now? And the congregant would often respond, I'm trying, I'm trying. And then Martin Lloyd-Jones, he's, he's um, kind of a grumpy old man, but he, he would say this, even though he's my, one of my heroes, At this moment, I knew that this person knew nothing about what real Christianity was. Because here's a person who's still looking at him 
or herself instead of at the lamb. Here's a person saying, behold, I'm unworthy. I'm trying, I'm trying, I'm trying. A Christian, Martin Lloyd-Jones says, is somebody who says, of course I'm unworthy. Of course I am. But it's my lamb. It's my savior. I transfer all of my trust, all of my confidence is taken from me and put over into him. I am standing on that now. Friends, for every one look at your own unworthiness, take 10 looks at Jesus because he is worthy and he loves He loves you. That's why he came. Jesus doesn't love you because you're worthy, but rather because he's generous and compassionate, full of mercy and loving. If we had to earn his grace, it wouldn't be grace at all. It certainly wouldn't be amazing. But because it's freely given, we can sing, Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that would save a wretch like me. Each week we participate in a communion meal, and this is one of the ways that we respond to what Jesus has done for us. And so uh, over the next song, we invite you, if you're a Christian with us today, if you're placing your faith in Christ, uh, to receive this meal. Let us stand as we prepare to respond to God's word through singing and through going to the table. Jesus, we, we ask now, that you'll meet with us as we take this communion meal, that anyone who does not know you or is not near to you, that you would be changing them from the inside out, that you would help them to understand that it's not their worthiness, but it's your righteousness, it's your love that's caused you to go out and to save your people. And God, I pray for anyone who just cannot get over this, that, that the gospel would finally sink in today, that they would place their eyes on the Lamb of God and not on their own worthiness. And we ask this in Christ's name, amen.